So this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. Mark 14, verses 43 through 52. And the title of this sermon is Seizing the Savior. Mark 14, verses 43 through 52. So as we're somewhat uh, nearing the end of the Gospel of Mark, I want to remind us of where it is that we began. Uh, In the very first sermon of this book, uh, however long ago that was, we noted that Mark used the words, the beginning, uh, for the purpose of connecting us to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Intentionally, as he's telling the story of Jesus, he's wanting to draw us to the creation story. Further, we learned that in the book of Mark, there's no birth narrative. Jesus appears on the scene as a fully grown man. Again, this was to help us make the connection of Jesus to Adam, who was placed on this earth as a fully grown man. Mark then takes Jesus out into the wilderness, where he's surrounded by wild animals. Garden imagery, right? Then, Jesus is tempted, just like Adam. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is the second and better Adam, and that everywhere Adam failed, Jesus succeeded on our behalf. So, here we are again, back in a garden, the same place that Adam fell and sin entered the world. So what does the Holy Spirit, through Mark, want to teach us? Let's dive into the text. Mark 14, 43 through 52. This is the word of the Lord. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, From the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. In last week's text, we saw Jesus praying, fully dependent on the Father, and his disciples sleeping, fully dependent on their own strength. Jesus woke them three times, saying, watch and pray. But each time, they hit the snooze button and dozed off again. Finally, the third time, Jesus wakes them up for good. Because there's an intruder in the garden. It's go time. Events that have been foretold for centuries are in motion. It's all about to happen. Look at verse 43. 
It says, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. It's a wild scene, isn't it? First, isn't it wild that Mark goes out of his way to say, Judas, one of the twelve. It's as if he's saying to us, don't forget, this is one of Jesus' closest friends. He's one of the twelve. This is unthinkable. Consider this. Judas, that night, had dinner with them. We read in John chapter 13, verses 27 through 30. Then after he had taken the morsel, so this is referring to Judas. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. John is so good with painting pictures of good and evil with light and darkness. The Judas went out, and it was night. This is evil. So Judas leaves dinner with them, which was already a late dinner, we noted, and he goes into the night to betray Jesus which probably wasn't an easy ordeal. Think about this. He, he couldn't just hop on a computer and email some people. While Jesus and the disciples were singing a hymn on the Mount of Olives, then praying, Judas had to do several things. First, he met with the Jewish authorities. He bargained with them for 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. By the way... 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. Specifically, the price that was paid for a slave if your ox gored and killed him. So he's willing to sell Jesus for the price of a gored slave. And, more importantly, 30 pieces of silver was the exact price that the Old Testament said that Jesus would be sold for in Zechariah chapter 11. So even in Judas's hate-filled actions, he's fulfilling prophecy. So, in the gap of a couple of hours, he has dinner with, with Jesus and the disciples. Satan enters him. He meets with the Jewish authorities. Then, in some way, he meets with the Roman authorities who send soldiers out as well. The Romans weren't about to let things get out of hand here. They were the ones who would have been carrying, in our text, swords. And the Jewish temple guards carrying clubs or billy clubs. That's what they carried in the temple. Again, this is shocking that these two groups are even doing anything together. If you don't know much about the atmosphere of that time, Jewish people and the Romans weren't buddies. They weren't allies. They didn't like each other at all. And yet, here, led by Judas, with Satan inside him, they're unified against Jesus. Unity isn't always a good thing, is it? Unity around the gospel, great. 
Unity for unity's sake? Not always great. And this isn't a small crowd either that we're talking about. I don't know why. I was telling some people at prayer this morning. I've always assumed that this was a group of 30, maybe 40 people, 50 people max. Here in Mark, it just says a crowd. But in John 18, verse 3, we read this, talking about this same moment. John 18, 3, it says, So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So this word that that John uses for band of soldiers, it's the word spera, and it's a word that means cohort. A normal Roman cohort was 600 soldiers. And remember that this is all happening during Passover, when the city's population was over a million people. Their cohort was most likely beefed up at this point. Plus, you add in the temple officers. This is most likely a group of about a thousand or more people with swords and clubs, lanterns and torches. This is an absolute mob armed and ready for violence. So we'll ask the question, why why the anticipation of violence? Well, there had recently, at this time, been a legitimate insurrection in town where people had been murdered. How do we know that? Mark 15, verse 7, that we'll come up to in a couple weeks. Mark 15, 7, and among the rebels in prison, so the word rebel can be insurrectionist, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. We'll get to Barabbas soon enough. So, this mob, probably making a ton of noise, over a thousand people, they head up into the garden, ready to forcefully take Jesus. Think about that. They didn't understand his kingdom, did they? They wrongfully believed that Jesus' kingdom was a worldly kingdom, defended and won in worldly ways. But that's not true, is it? In John 18, verse 36, Jesus reminds us, he says, he says my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not, might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom won't be victorious by the use of violence or money or power or politics. It's not of this world. It's won by grace and mercy and love and sacrifice. It's truly an upside-down kingdom. It doesn't work the way that the world works. Look at how Jesus spells this out explicitly in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, 
for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Strange, right? Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Here's the point. Jesus' kingdom is otherworldly. It doesn't function like the, the little K kingdoms here on earth. This mob certainly didn't understand that at all. The question is, do we? Do we understand what Jesus' kingdom actually is? It's so easy to get swept up into thinking like the world thinks. So don't forget that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom that wins in the end. Moving on in verses 44 through 46, it says, now the betrayer had given them a sign. So they, they come with over a thousand people. Judas is with them. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Isn't this awful? He approaches Jesus with a kiss, a symbol of intimacy or affection, and with the title rabbi, which is a term of honor. Yet, all the while, he's handing Jesus over to death. This is where we get the term the kiss of death from. So let's just stop and ask the question. How did Judas get here? I imagine even six months before this, if you had shown Judas this exact scene and told him that, that his name would forever be associated with betrayal, he would have laughed you out of the room. Judas began by stealing from the disciples' money bag and who knows what else. And it led here. Sin gradually and then quickly hardened his heart and led to his eternal destruction. So how about you? You might not consider yourself a, a Judas, but do you honor Jesus with your lips? Show signs of affection all the while playing with sin that will absolutely destroy you. I'm afraid that there are hundreds of thousands who call themselves Christians inside churches who fit this description. Mark goes out of his way here to remind us that Judas was one of the twelve. Think about that. He spent 
years walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, spending every waking hour with Jesus, and yet hated him enough to participate in his murder. Hear this. Showing up and singing songs that, that honor Jesus with our lips. Praying prayers that express our affection for Jesus. Will not save us from God's wrath any more than it did Judas. Judas, more than anyone else in all of the Bible, should scare us to death. And cause us to examine whether we're truly in the faith. And I'm not making a statement here about eternal security. The Bible teaches that those who truly are believers, those who genuinely have repented and believed, that they will never escape the Father's hand. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Judas is something different. He never was truly a born-again believer. He only went through the motions. He physically followed Jesus, but his heart was far from him. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, gives us this exhortation. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Judas's story here screams at us to do this hard work in our hearts. But even within this moment, I want us to see the love of Christ. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 49 and 50, we read this. This is, again, speaking of, of Judas. It says, And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. <laughs> Even in this horrible moment of hypocrisy and betrayal, Jesus calmly calls Judas friend. Isn't that unreal? Jesus doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't call Judas names. He doesn't yell. I probably would have done all three of those. Matthew 5.44 Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus lived that out. We're called to do the same. I know I often don't. If I'm betrayed, I somehow feel that I'm entitled to hatred. I'm not. You're not. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I just want to say as clearly as I know how, I'm just like last week. That's impossible for you to do on your own. You can't do that on your own, of your own strength and your own will. Doing that, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, even in the midst of this kind of betrayal, it's a miracle of the Holy Spirit and only possible through God's strength. 
So pray in absolute dependence on God. Asking Him to give you a supernatural amount of love. But we also shouldn't miss here that Jesus is fully confident in God's Word as well. So how is He able not to react to Judas? Or to quickly try and escape out into the darkness? How is He able to do that? Because He knows that this is all happening according to God's will. As spelled out in the scriptures. Look at verse 49. It says, Jesus says, But let the scripture be fulfilled. What a concise and powerful statement. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. I love the words of J.C. Ryle here. He says this. He says, Let us rest our souls on the thought that all around us is ordered and overruled by God's almighty wisdom. The course of this world may often be contrary to our wishes. The position of the church may often be very unlike what we desire. The wickedness of worldly men and the inconsistencies of believers may often afflict our souls. But there is a hand above us, moving the vast machine of this universe and making all things work together for his glory. The scriptures are being yearly fulfilled not one jot or tittle in them shall ever fail to be accomplished. Jesus understands that. The mob doesn't. But look at what happens next. Verse 47. It says, But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck off the servant of the high priest, uh, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Interesting. Um, Mark, for once, doesn't throw his buddy Peter under the bus here, does he? He doesn't tell us who this is that drew the sword and cut off the guy's ear. But John, in the book of John, not so much. He full-on throws Peter under the bus. John tells us that this sword-wielding disciple was none other than Simon Peter. Of course it was Peter. None of us are surprised by that. He pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of a guy named Malchus. Now, Peter is either really bold or really dumb. Maybe both. Do you remember how many people were in this mob? Close to a thousand, if not more, with swords and clubs. What did the disciples have at their disposal? Probably two swords. Luke chapter 22, verses 36 through 38. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Verse 38, And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. So Jesus isn't against self-defense. He told them to get a sword. They get two. But in our text, Peter, this isn't self-defense. He's the aggressor here. 
He pops up and just lops off this guy's ear. Why the sudden boldness? Well, for one thing, he knows that he just finished at dinner shooting off his mouth, right? And he said that he would die before denying or abandoning Jesus. His pride's on the line. But there's something else. John, again, fills in the story a little more for us. John chapter 18, verses 3 through 6. It says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Check this out. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You see that? Jesus says, I am he. The name of the God of the universe revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. And all of the soldiers, a thousand of them, hit the deck. They fall to the ground. Who's really in charge here? Jesus. His life isn't taken from him. It's given. He's in complete control, even in handing himself over to this mob. But Peter, emboldened by this display of Jesus's power, decides that he's going to help Jesus out a little bit. He decides to reach for the sword. He thought he was helping, or even defending Jesus. But his methods were wrong. They were worldly. So here's the question for us. Where do you, like Peter, reach for the sword? Where are you tempted to lean on worldly kingdom stuff instead of on the sovereign God? Where do you tend to be an impulsive disciple? Christianity doesn't always advance by, by sword or by might. But it advances by the faithful preaching of the gospel. Jesus didn't need Peter's power. He could fully defend himself. And yet, he chose to submit to the Father's good and sovereign plan. So what does Jesus do? I mean, imagine that. A thousand people coming up the hill expecting violence. And out comes a sword. Uh, an ear gets chopped off. Malchus is probably screaming uncontrollably at this point. I'm sure that at this point, every sword is drawn out and every club ready to go. But we learn in Luke chapter 22, verse 51, that Jesus calmly said, no more of this. It says, and he touched his ear and healed him. Talk about a, a peaceful resolution to what most definitely would have quickly ramped into violence, right? At this point, Matthew, in Matthew 26, verse 52 through 54, he tells us that then Jesus said to him, 
So he heals this guy's ear, and then he says to Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? Do you see that? Twelve legions of angels. Let's put this into perspective. In the Old Testament, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. One angel. Jesus says, Peter, I could call down 72,000 angels right now. You see that? Jesus is in complete control. And look at his next words, verses 48 and 49. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. He's highlighting, again, their complete misunderstanding of who he is and their cowardice. They didn't do this in broad daylight in the city for a reason. They knew that they they weren't following the law. We'll see this more and more in, in next week's text. There was no charge made at this point. We also know from reading through the book of Mark, that they also feared the people, right? They knew that if they tried this in the day, that it would probably result in a riot. They were cowards. But it was happening at this moment on this night because it was perfectly fulfilling scripture. Jesus would die at three o'clock that day, right on time as the true Passover lamb. They haven't tricked him. God is not surprised or mocked. Then in verse 50, we read this. And they all left him and fled. Jesus is left all alone. No one stuck with him. Just like he said it would happen. Alone. Have you ever felt abandoned and alone? Jesus has. He can empathize with us. This verse is a perfect picture of our human nature. We're, as the song goes, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And then Mark includes this strange footnote, almost in verse 51 and 52. He's the only gospel writer to include this little tidbit of information. Verses 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Strange, right? In the middle of all of this, a streaker 
Why in the world would Mark include this in the story? Well, a lot of scholars infer that this young man is Mark himself, who would have been the only one who could have told this part of the story. That's speculation, but I think it's probably right. Regardless, the question still stands. Why would Mark include this in the story. Let's finish where we started. Where else in scripture is a man's nakedness exposed in a garden? Genesis 3. Adam. He essentially said to God, not your will, but mine. Opposite of what Jesus said. He took the fruit, ate, ushered sin into the world. He was naked and ashamed. Uh, All through the Bible, nakedness is a symbol for two things, shame and judgment. Shame and judgment. Further, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, there at the end we read, is speaking of God, he drove out the man, And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Gardens, the presence of Satan, sin, swords, nakedness. Do you think Mark's trying to tell us something? Human sin that that began in the Garden of Eden all the way back in Genesis 3. It has fully blossomed, leading to Jesus being betrayed and abandoned. This moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Mark 14, it's a shameful, shameful moment. One of the most shameful moments in history. But even in the darkest day, there's hope. Why? Because Jesus is the better Adam. Everywhere that Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours, Father. He chose not to draw the sword so that we might enter the garden again. Jesus lived a perfect life of righteousness so that he could cover our nakedness our shame. Do you see that? Do you believe that? Follow me here. Every single one of us, if you're human, and I'm assuming you are, every single one of us are offsprings of Adam. We have sinned and opened ourselves to shame and judgment. We're the guy running from the garden with no linen cloth. Not Jesus. Jesus never sinned. He obeyed God at every point. And then he allowed himself to be taken by a mob. He was crucified on a Roman cross, shedding his blood for our sin. He died died 
the death uh, that each and every one of us as descendants of Adam deserve. And when we turn from our sin and trust in him, we get clothed in his righteousness. That's what the scriptures tell us. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. This is beautiful. It says this. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Where does that robe of righteousness come from? Not us. It comes from Jesus. When we trust in Jesus and him alone for salvation, our sin is forgiven. Our shame is covered. And we're declared righteous before a holy God. That's good news. That's the gospel. If you're here and you're a Christian, rest in the truth of that gospel. Know that no matter what you've done, you're forgiven because Jesus is the better Adam. No more shame. No more guilt. It's finished. You're pardoned and atoned for and clothed and declared righteous. That's true. Believe that today. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to follow Jesus. Turn from sin. Trust in him. Repent and believe today. You'll be forgiven forever. You'll also be declared righteous. You'll no longer be considered in Adam, but in Christ. It's the most precious, amazing gift you could ever be offered. So call out to Jesus and give him your life. You'll never be the same. Let's praise God for that good news and that truth today. Let's pray.